Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Warning. This episode of Guilt discusses the topic of the death of a child. Listener discretion is strongly advised. On the last episode of Guilt. Um, so Sergeant Tamariki, who's quite nice and that, you know, and, um, yeah, I said, you know, I don't know what I've done, but, you know, this bloody, I'm worried about my son, and, you know, we've got to keep him safe and that. And he said, oh, yeah, I, you know, don't worry about your son, you just got to behave yourself, nothing will happen to him, we'll make sure of that. Yeah, they never left once. They never left the house? Not once. And yet none of the, no, none of the neighbours, uh, like, everyone had their windows open, sliding doors open, it was still 29 degrees at this stage, mate. It was bloody hot. Not one person ever heard a scream or a yell or that. And here's a, here's a mum of a three-year-old wee boy. Never heard her once. There's something funny going on here, really. Like, the, the kids didn't seem to worry. They weren't worried about it, you know? They obviously didn't like life for a start. But every second time I went around this place, I told him my son was in danger. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. When we finished the previous episode, Lockie's father, Paul Jones, was recounting the circumstances of what he remembers of the night of Lockie's tragic death. Arriving at Lockie's mother, Michelle Officer's home, he found Michelle and a number of others inside, who, according to Paul, were watching TV and cooking dinner, while police scoured the surrounding area looking for the missing three-year-old. Shortly thereafter, Paul would be told the thing no parent ever wants to hear that his son has been found and that he is deceased before we continue I'd like to remind you that the following is Paul's recollection of the events of that night it's being recorded four years after the event and as such is not necessarily a statement that can be relied upon as 100% fact but given the lack of accurate police reporting from that night is clearly important. As we'll find going forward, the exact timeline of the night is something that is in dispute to this very day. Yeah. 
and so tell me so what happens then obviously you get told that I mean that must be pretty emotional obviously oh yeah well, I mean I don't know how by this stage I rang my dad and that and he, he well he was on his way out to help us anyway so and then he got there and I had to say oh he was gone and that so um, they'd take him down to St John's so I had to go we had to go down to St John's um, and the um, uh, they had him in a police car and um, in the back of a police car and uh, the guy that I um, that took me down to the um, Bacago police station that night Sergeant Tamariki he was there and standing there so me and him had a bust up I said I told you cunt that this was going to happen to my son Oh yeah, how did you let it happen and that? And he just turned his back on me. And um, then my dad um, went into the police car and um, with his partner Karen. And um, yeah, then it got worse because my dad said, "Oh, oh, hang on a minute, Paul, don't you don't um, don't you touch me stone cold? It's like a block of ice." I thought, "Oh, hang on, how the hell, you know?" And then I sort of thought afterwards, you know, that night, you know, how the hell has it got so cold when it's so hot, you know? And Karen said as well, you know, it's just stone cold. And I went to give him a kiss and that, and oh, it was just doing too much for me at that stage, mate, you know? Yeah. So my dad and his partner wanted me to get into a car, but I went round to a old a friend that I, was, I could stay with, Kevin McCartney's an old guy that me and him had a few interests in sport and that. And he was another guy, he'd tell you. About every second time I went around this place, I told him my son was in danger. Yeah. You know, he said, oh, he used to tell me all the time. So I stayed there that night because I had to organise my work and get some workers and that in the morning because at that stage it was, you know, almost midnight. So yeah. I went round and sat around there most of the night and tried to get some sleep. And then I went and organised some staff and headed back to Vicargo after that and tried to, yeah take it all in yeah it's just oh it's devastating mate yeah oh, no, I can't even imagine how hard that would be if you'll remember in the previous episode Paul recalled the night he was arrested for the incident with Michelle and Cameron and Johnny and the subsequent ride to the station in the police car with Sergeant Tamariki and how he had told the officer that he thought something was going to happen to his son was told not to worry. Now imagine the situation on this night when Paul sees the same sergeant at the scene of his now deceased son. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. To say this moment would be emotionally charged, I think, would be an understatement. In New Zealand, as in most places in the world, standard operating procedure in the event of any death is a police investigation. The scene will be cordoned off, preventing public access until that investigation has been completed. This occurs in instances even where the death might appear to obviously have no foul play. For example, a car crash will be forensically examined. Detailed photos of the scene will be taken prior to it being reopened to the public. On the night of Lockie's death, no such thing took place. The site was not cordoned off. There was no scene investigation, 
No evidence was collected about how Lockie had ended up in this oxidation pond 1.2 kilometres from his mother's home. It appears the police took the situation for what it initially appeared to be a tragic drowning and moved on. And um, Sergeant Tamariki ticked the box and said there's no suspicious circumstances or or no um, sort of thing of violent background or, or, or anything like that and none of that was true. You know, he just closed it all down, shut it all down, you know. Yeah. And of course, come to think of it now, you know, I wouldn't have let them shut it down if I hadn't been emotionally taken away by it all and that, you know. It wasn't until the next day I thought, oh, some of this is not right, you know. It's actually, oh, you don't, at that stage of the thing, when you're overwhelmed like that, you don't actually sit down and think about it. Of course, yeah. You know, and you, then you sort of, next day you think, fuck, how the hell did he get way out there? And at nine o'clock at night, no cunts heard him, and yeah, it's sort of... Yeah. So that Tamariki too, he was the same cop that you were telling days earlier. Yeah, he was the one that took me down to the Invercargill prison. You know, so he... <laughs> Even after you said that, he didn't think maybe on the day, like, well, maybe we oh, should look into this more. Of course you should, would have, mate. We should have, yeah. He would have had the bloody shock of his life when he said it was Lachlan there. You know, there's experienced CIB people there, mate. They know their job. You know, there's a bloody house at an empty fire uh, and down Hockanui Drive, you know, a gang-related house. Empty. And yet they had that cordon off for two days with a police guard. Yeah, they didn't think about it to do my son, you know. Or maybe they just wanted to wanted to put it down to drowning to make make didn't want this sort of thing happening in Gore, you know. Mm. Yeah, you know, some, you know, something sinister's happened, you know. I don't know how they can act like that, and and you know, at this stage they've given me no answers, you know. I don't know how my son got out there, you know. And that, and ninety percent of Gore, or probably ninety nine percent of Gore. In the same boat as me, you know. They don't know what to do, you know. It's easy for them, you know. They haven't lost their son. They get on with their lives. I can't. It's a big. I've got nothing left apart from, you know, Caroline and that now, and my job and that. You know, I had all that taken away from me. Why? Yeah. You know, there's. You know, I wouldn't even believe it. It happened at two o'clock in the afternoon. If it happened at two o'clock when he was up and about, you know, he never wandered off. But you know here. How do they shut that down when you're talking about a three-year-old kid and he's got way up there at nine o'clock at night? You know, climbed over a fence and gravelled, you know, and yet, you know, people from the four um, guy in the United States, your kids don't behave, yeah. behave like that. As soon as they get in pain and that, they just sit down or, or don't go any further, you know, but they've, you know, they've just, nah, that's none of it's right. Do you think there's that element of sort of small town cops just don't know how to deal with these sort of yeah, intense I situations? That. I don't believe that at all, mate. Yeah. There's experienced people there, you know, people have been here for 20 years, you know. You know, surely incidents like this and that, they've got to be prepared to deal with it, you know, that's not an excuse. Yeah. It's people down in Vicargo, you know, if it, you know, surely, well, the dog handler from Vicargo and the CIB guy come from Invercargo and that. Yeah. So don't know, don't know their jobs either. Who do, you, who do you get then? Yeah. You know? If you were quick to start pointing the finger at local police, perhaps not conducting an investigation that perhaps city cops might have, then you'd be mistaken. Present that night 
were New Zealand's CIB. The CIB are New Zealand's criminal investigation branch, which consists of detectives whose role is dedicated to investigating and solving serious crime. This unit is experienced and thorough. Yet despite the seemingly odd nature of the incident, the crime scene wasn't secured, and some key witnesses weren't interviewed until a month after the event, and others, not at all. In fact, the following day, media, council staff, and locals would be freely accessing the site of Lockie's discovery, trampling the long grass and potentially destroying any evidence which could have held vital clues to what took place. And one of those people that visited the site was Paul and his friend Karen Maguire. And it was on this walk that alarm bells started to go off. Because this wasn't a casual stroll. From the end of Grasslands Road, where the asphalt becomes gravel, it's about 700 metres to the spot Lockie was found in the second oxidation pond. The first 200 metres being a rough gravel road before reaching the first pond. From here, the remaining 500 metres is long, knee-to-waist-high grass, thistles and sheep dung. Karen Maguire recalls this in an excerpt from Mel Reed's newsroom investigation in 2021, which we're using here with their permission. We walked out there the next day and in our sneakers and socks, and we ended up with little cuts and little bites and you know on, on our ankles. So a little boy would have had some marks on his feet if he was said to have run that way. It just, it just didn't add up, it didn't make sense. Paul recalls that moment this simple fact really hit home when he visited Lockie in the funeral home. Just a warning, some people may find this distressing. I went in with Dave Bacon to see Lockie and that, and, uh, you know, even they said, oh, hang on a minute, he's come in perfect condition, not one scratch on him, and I thought, oh, hang on a minute. You know, and I, so I said to Dave, and they said, oh, can you double-check, you know? So they took his shoes and socks off and, and that and double-checked, and I've got a letter from them to yeah. say he's in perfect condition. And they um, got it done, the pathology said there wasn't a mark on him as well, so... Um, yeah, and I thought, oh, hang on a minute, this is bloody weird, you know. Yeah. So, cross, you know, all that way, and you know. So we went out the we went out the next day ourselves, and I um, we had all these cuts and bites and that up, and I thought, yeah, oh, bloody hell, that you know, there's nothing on them, yeah, scratches and that, and even the lady from the Times, you know, she come in the back way to check things out, and you know, it's long prickly glass and. You know, there's no sheep shit on them or anything, you know. Yeah. I thought, you know, the thing that's full of sheep shit and, uh, shit and those proper thistles and yeah, that, yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. I thought, oh, hang on a minute, what, something's gone wrong here and that. And then we saw the Karen and that, and that was um, Karen's sister that sort of said, shit, a boy wouldn't come out here. He had marks on him, you know. Then all of a sudden the penny dropped and we all started looking at each other. other, other. Yeah. So we had our concerns straight away then. Well, well, you know, I just, I would have had them anyway, you know, once I 
got over the, you know. The initial shock of it. Oh, yeah, it's fucking huge, mate, you know. You just think, nah, you're blaming yourself and that, you don't know what, you know. We fella, you know, I can put his arm around me and said, I didn't want to stay here and that, you know. And when I thought about that on the later day, that didn't click into later, you know. You know, was he trying to tell me something, you know. A 1.2 kilometre walk, or likely run, for a three-year-old toddler in bare feet over loose gravel, through long grass and thistles, and yet he has no marks of any kind. No scratches, no prickles, nothing. In order for Lockie to have entered the council-owned oxidation ponds, Lockie would have also had to get past a barbed wire four-foot-high cyclone gate. If the police theory is to be believed, he did this by climbing the wooden fence immediately adjacent to the gate. It's important to note that this doesn't rule out the fact that it's possible that he may have covered this ground and climbed this fence with no marks. Not myself, nor anyone else has performed any test other than the anecdotal experience of walking that same path. So it cannot be definitively said that Lockie couldn't have, only that there's no evidence to show that he did. The night before Lockie's death, Paul stayed with him. And to this day, he carries his own personal feeling of guilt that perhaps Lockie was trying to tell him something. Here, Paul recalls this moment in one of our earlier phone calls. So, uh, all of a sudden she uh, let me stay there um, the night before. So, I stayed there the night before and... um, yeah, oh, just things didn't seem right and that, and he didn't want anything to do with them. And uh, so I, she said, oh, you can sleep in our bed, and I'll she'll sleep on the couch. And I said, oh, okay. So we went there, and, um, yeah, as I said, he put his arm around me. He said, oh, Dad. He said, oh, I don't want to uh, live here anymore. And uh, I said, oh, what's going on, boy? And he goes, oh, no, I want to come and... Come, come with you. Let's go. Let's go to a motel because we I had the odd times we go away together and go to a motel. In the past, as a treat, sometimes Paul would take Lockie away for a weekend stay in a motel. And according to Paul, on the night before his death, Lockie told him that he didn't want to live at Michelle's anymore. He wanted to go with Paul. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Now, at the funeral home, 
seeing Lockie with no marks on his body, and realizing how unlikely this was given the path he supposedly had taken. This final memory of Lockie telling him he didn't want to live there anymore seemed to Paul to be too much of a coincidence. The following day, being the day of Lockie's death, there was another strange occurrence, which took place at the Courier Depot, from where Paul runs his business. At 4pm, Michelle arrived at the depot to tell Paul not to come visit Lockie before his haircut, as he'd originally promised Lockie he would. Here, he describes this odd event. You know, some, you know, he didn't even, he wasn't even down at her friend's house that night. He was gone well before then, mate. You, you know, none of it adds up, you know. Her demeanour when she come in that depot that time, that's enough for uh, it's yeah. enough alarm bells and the other say, hang on a minute, you know. So that was when she came in and said Before he was unwell. Yeah. So tell me just let's go over that again. So you were you're at the depot, she comes in at four o'clock. Yeah. And what does she say? Oh she said, Oh Lockie's not well and that he's gonna have to go home and have a sleep and that and I because I was gonna come and promise them I'd see him before I got my hair cut. Oh right, so 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 you're there. She pulls up in the car. Oh, she always leaves the car out on the thing, but she come running right up because I was at the desk and that night, and I was talking to someone, and then I said, oh, oh yeah, hang on, and then she went, oh, oh, don't come round, don't come round. I'll get lucky to ring you later. And went running out, so I went to go out and so to see him, but she just took off in the car. I was too late. Oh, so she's come round and sort of, kind of, tried to lay the, say, hey, don't, don't come round because he's yeah. not well. Fuck, that's a bit of an alarm bell, isn't it? Yeah. And she's kind of a bit panicky. And yeah, and Cameron said he wasn't there, but when I drove past his car there, me and him didn't get on, that's why I didn't go in. Also, oh, straight from that, you drove past the house? Oh, when I left the depot. Yeah. This was at four o'clock earlier on, and she said, oh, I've got to get him home, he's not well. So I thought, oh, shit, I'm going to go and check on him on the way home, bugger her, and then Cameron's car was there. But he said he didn't get back into town at six o'clock, but his bloody car was there. Yeah. So I just kept on saying, I thought, shit, he'll bring me later anyway, you know. Yeah. I'll see what he quite often call you in, in the evening sort of thing. No, she made a point that, oh, that he would ring me this night, you know. Oh, right, okay. So I wouldn't go around there, you know. And I was, well, I didn't think that was going to happen, you know. Christ. Now, thinking about it, you know, just... Yeah. Just, oh, everything was out of character, eh? you know. Oh, no, I'll never forget that as long as I live, mate. She goes, oh, you know, I think Lockie's missing. I said, well, hang on a minute. How can you think, think Michelle? Then she goes, oh, 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 oh no, oh no, I think he's missing. And then she hung up. As these strange occurrences began to mount, Paul's initial shock and confusion changed instead to a firm belief that in his mind, his son didn't walk 1.2 kilometres out to the pond that night. And that he believes whatever happened to Lockie occurred many hours before he was ever reported missing by Michelle. You know, like a lot of people might say, oh, this is just a dad and he's just... Oh, I you understand know. But when you, you start to look at all the evidence, it starts to back up your what you're saying. Yeah, well, if it was done right, if it was done properly the way it should have been, you know, we may have other answers, but, you know, all that was prevented. And we're all, all the statements I've seen that the police have got and that, nothing... 
backs up that my son walked out that door and headed to where he was. Hmm. There's no evidence to say he was. No one's seen him since half past two. So where was he since half past two? Yeah. No one's seen him. He was unwell. Yeah. <laughs> That's what she said, huh? Yeah. And, yet, and then she's saying he hadn't had a sleep, you know. And he was out playing with the prink, uh, sprinkler. She told me she's unwell. Next minute they're playing out on the sprinkler. Because it was hot. The point Paul is highlighting here is that if Lockie had indeed been unwell, as Michelle had told Paul when she ran into the depot, so unwell that she said not to come and visit, why then would he be out playing in the sprinkler on the lawn only hours later, as Michelle described? This one point in itself is not proof of anything, but when viewed in the context of the overall situation, starts to warrant further investigation. Paul has another reason. He believes that his son was deceased before the official police timeline suggests. And I'll add here that Paul is not a forensic pathologist, and obviously neither am I. But he recalls the shock when Lockie was found and his body was very cold to the touch. And um, then my dad um, went into the police car and um, with his partner Karen and um, yeah, then it got worse because my dad said, "Oh, oh, hang on a minute, Paul, don't you don't um, don't you touch me stone cold? It's like a block of ice." I thought, "Oh, hang on, how the hell, you know." And then I sort of thought afterwards, you know, that night, you know, how the hell has it got so cold when it's so hot, you know? And Karen said as well, you know, he's just stone cold when I went to give him a kiss and that, and, oh, it was just all too much for me at that stage, mate, you know? Even the St John's fella that done the report, he was concerned because he couldn't even get a temperature reading off him. Yeah. That's how cold he was. He said he got no reading at all. Yeah. You know, just, of course, um... Dave Aiken, he was an ambulance driver, and he, was, he told me, he said, oh, mate, that doesn't look good. I've reached out to the St. John's ambulance that worked on Lockie that night, but they declined to answer any questions due to the fact that this case is still with the coroner. So I haven't been able to verify Paul's statement that they couldn't get a reading. I've done some very basic research, and as a general rule of thumb, after death... A body will begin to lose 0.8 degrees Celsius per hour until it reaches the temperature of the surrounding environment. This speed can be increased in instances where the surroundings are very cold. Oxidation ponds such as the one in Gore are very similar if not identical to the pond I visited in Season 2 in Waiuku when I was investigating the disappearance of Jim Donnelly. And while I don't have the exact temperature of the pond in Gore the night Lockie was found, I know that these types of ponds operate best at a temperature of at least 20.5 degrees Celsius. Given the day in question was an extremely hot 30 degrees Celsius, I'm confident in saying the ponds would have been at least 20.5 degrees. So let's use that figure for the surrounding temperature. The figure we don't have is the temperature of the body at the time of the reading and when it has been described as ice cold. But to provide an example of time frame, according to this basic principle of body cooling, it would take 40.8 hours 
for a body to cool from 37 degrees Celsius, which is the temperature of a living person, to 20 degrees Celsius, the surrounding water temperature. Now, I'm not saying that 40 hours have passed. Clearly, that isn't the case. He was picked up from kindergarten at 2.30pm. And there are other factors that speed cooling. For example, the size of the body. And in the case of Lockie, being a very small child, the body would cool considerably faster. We must also consider that as laymen, we are not used to the touch of a dead body. So the very feeling of it not being at the usual temperature might create the feeling to us of it being very cold, just due to the shock. But with all this in mind, for the body to have cooled to the point to be considered, as Paul and others have described, stone cold, in only two hours, which is the time Michelle last reports seeing him at approximately 9pm, and the time of his discovery being 11pm, seems again, at the very least, to warrant further investigation. To at the bare minimum, cordon off the area and perform an examination of the scene, and interview key witnesses immediately. Witnesses who were literally present at the scene, on the street, and in Michelle's home. Well, we know that didn't happen. And if you're sitting there thinking this is already sounding suspicious, we're only just getting started. In upcoming episodes, we're going to cover many more elements of this case that may support the theory that Lockie didn't walk 1.2 kilometers down the street and a gravel road, climb a fence, walk through thistles, down two ponds, and fall in the shallow pond and drown. But for now, I want to finish the episode with Paul, painfully describing the aftermath of the death of his three-year-old son. A son who technically was still under Michelle's custody. Like an emotional way, you're both as parents, you've never been, she's never been like, fuck, I'm so sorry, Paul, that this happened. and Never confronted me since the thing. Well, never really spoken to her? No, they went their own separate way at the funeral camp come in 20 minutes late and all my family side of it waited for them and they come in laughing and joking and yeah and you see so you've never really spoken to her since that day no she's nothing to do with me well it's there's been no emotion no nothing mate it's just um, yeah it's like um, she never even had any respect or cared for me I, you know she's never you know, that was as much my son as it was hers, you know. Yeah. And take him out of the funeral home and that, that still didn't sit well for me, saying that I had custody of him then, you know. My dad my dad had to go and uh, visit his grandson through a back door at her place the day of the funeral and got to see him for about two minutes and then had to go out the thing. It wasn't allowed any contact or that with him. Um, a good mate of mine I had through the career run, he's an old older respected guy Johnny Watson and that he thought I'd be at the house went to the house and he was absolutely disgusted they're all on the piss drinking whiskey and all that and Lockie was down the back room with all the windows open freezing cold yeah oh he was disgusted he says he's never seen anything like it in his life yeah I mean normally in the event of a tragedy people can put their past differences aside and come together you yeah know. it was never that never happened no I didn't even got hardly any say on my son's funeral 
It's fucking sad, eh? You know, I was put to the side and that, you know. Oh, we got custody of them, so they all, you know, made me even feel fucking lower than I all, you know. I wasn't, you know, the beds. You know, I lost my son and then, you know, I couldn't even contribute, you know. There's a saying. Strength and unity. You know it. You've heard it before, and you've felt it. And that's a fundamental human instinct. That in the face of crisis, we come together. We forget our past differences, whatever these might be. Because deep down, we know that a hurdle is easier to climb if you've got someone else there with you. To share in your grief and grow stronger through your courage. Paul was a man who had just lost his only son, his Lockie, in the most tragic of circumstances. And instead of pulling him in to share in her grief, to explain, to say sorry, Lockie's mother and her family instead opted to push him out. Using her custody, Paul's inclusion in the organisation of his son's funeral was minimal. He was an outsider. What they didn't count on, though, was the support of the people. Paul's friends, his family, the community, a dogged reporter, and even the local council. I guess as it turns out, That saying, it does mean something. This is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced, and narrated by me, Ryan Wolfe. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions. And are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. You'll find a detailed video showing the proposed path Lockie walked on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, or our Facebook page, Brevity Studios NZ. I also highly recommend you join the discussion with hundreds of other guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast discussion group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. Unlike other New Zealand podcasts, we've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. And you can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple Plus or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. On the next episode of Guilt. Yeah, it was shot in horror, really. You know, those poles have been there for a long time. They were built in the early 70s, um, and they've had the same level and degree of protection they had all the time. Wow, okay, if this is the spot that he walked, holy shit, that's a long way. I mean, I'm turned now, and I'm looking down grasslands, oh no... Gee, what street is this? 
grasslands might be the other side. But anyway, I'm looking down towards the oxidation ponds and the asphalt extends for a couple hundred metres and then it turns into a loose metal road. But I mean, we're talking, geez, it's a long way down there. I mean, it's probably 500 metres to where I can see there's a, a building and a fence further down. This is far different, far further than what I expected. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.